Good morning, everyone. You can make your way back in if you're out in the entryway. Come on back in. We're going to get into God's Word together. If we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith, one of the leaders here at Christ Central. Certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, it's good to gather as a church and as the people of God and get into the Word of God together. And for the next few minutes, that's what we're going to do. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the welcome table out in the entryway. Uh, and they are yours to have. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. If you have seven sitting at home on a shelf, then don't grab one of those. Okay? All right. Uh, Joe and Angela and the family are in PEI this morning, uh, helping our friends at uh, Christ Central Charlottetown, and Joe is preaching there this morning, so you can be in prayer for him. Uh, I kind of wish I was there because he said that during his message this morning, he was going to quote uh, Audio Adrenaline's hit from 1999, Underdog. Um, so for those of you who grew up in youth group culture in the mid to late 90s, you just hummed, that's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. And those of you who didn't, it is okay that you missed the 90s scene of contemporary Christian music. It's kind of like the Dark Ages. It's not a great time in the history of the church. We just move on from that. Boo. Underdog was good, though. Underdog, just for future trivia, was the second CD I ever owned. So... You can learn a lot about people by what the first few albums that they owned are. And we won't mention what Mark's was, but we were talking about it in the office this week. I think it was Wham. Wake me up before you go-go. We'll just leave. It was a single. Okay. Well, that makes it better. All right, so we finished off last time with the, uh, the first verse of chapter 7, 7 verse 1. That's where we ended uh, last time. And, uh, and so now we're going to begin in verse 2, and we're going to go through right to the end of chapter 7. All right, so we've got a, a larger chunk than normal to cover this morning. Uh, so that's where we are. And we're going to look specifically at the community life uh, that we're shown here by Paul, the Corinthians, and another guy that we haven't heard much from, not since chapter 2, Paul's friend and his, his co-worker Titus. He's going to come back in to the picture. All right, so I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. I hit this earlier. I don't know if that's... We're good? Okay. Feels different than normal, but... All right, so Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your presence here with us. We're so thankful for the church, uh, that we're not on our own. We get to gather together as your people uh, and sit under your word, and we get to ask for your spirit uh, to work in our lives, uh, to uh, work in us and to transform us and to conform us more into the image of your son. Uh, we recognize the great privilege that it is, that when we come to your word, we're not just coming to a textbook, we're not just coming to a history book, uh, we're coming to your, your word uh, that is living and active, and we ask, Father, that you would do a great work uh, through your word in our hearts this morning, that you give us eyes to see 
and ears to hear and hearts to understand uh, what you want to do in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, All right. Yeah. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. All right. A lot there, eh? And a whole lot of comfort, joy, comfort, joy, rejoice, comfort, joy. Here we go. Let's see uh, what Paul's getting at in this this chapter. So this section of Paul's letter, uh, it really marks a significant turning point in the the letter. Uh, Those first couple verses that we read, uh, two to four, you could go to the next slide. Those, those verses there, uh, they kind of signal the end of one section and the beginning of another in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, so with 7.1, we've just come to the end of Paul's defense of his ministry. Uh, so for quite some time now, Paul has been defending his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians. It really began way back in 2 verse 12. Uh, that's when Paul started the story about waiting for Titus. He said back, In 2 verse 12, if you want to flip there, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, 
even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And just when you think, okay, he's waiting for Titus, he was waiting for him at Troas, then he went to Macedonia, what's going to happen next? In verse 14, he just says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And then we've had uh, five chapters of Paul never getting back to this story, okay? So some of you know people who go down bunny trails and you think that story didn't actually end. What's the ending to that story? That's what Paul, that's what kind of happened with Paul here. He started this story in chapter 2. Last time we heard about this story, he's waiting in Macedonia for Titus, and he's never picked it up again until this chapter, in chapter 7. And so everything in between from the start of the story to the end of the story here in chapter 7, is Paul defending his apostolic ministry. So in this new section, Paul moves kind of from being an apologist defending the faith to a pastor admonishing his flock. And as we said way back when we started this letter, 2 Corinthians is the most emotional of all of Paul's letters. It's the letter that uh, we kind of get the most peek behind the curtain of the heart and the life of the Apostle Paul. And so nowhere else in the New Testament do we see Paul's heart open and laid bare like we do in this letter. And chapter 7 is a great example of that. And here we see a man who is giving his life for the church, who's opening his heart to see others come to know Jesus. Just look at what he says in this, in this opening paragraph. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. In everything I've done, Corinthians, I've acted justly. In everything, I'm working for you, not for myself. And he says, you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Interesting that Paul flips around the order that we would usually say. We would usually say, I'll live with you and I'll die with you. Paul says, I'll die with you and I'll live with you with you. He's pointing them to what? To the resurrection. He's pointing them back to the resurrection of Jesus, reminding them of that, which in turn reminds us of our own resurrection. We've seen this many times already in the letter that Paul is constantly, almost forcefully pushing eternity onto his readers. He wants his churches to be almost overwhelmed with eternity as it was. And here he wants this church that he planted and cared for and discipled and grew to see that through not only all of this life, but through all of eternity, he is with them to, to die together and to live together. They are in his heart. He says that he has great pride in them. He really puts himself out there. He isn't afraid to open himself up towards them. He even says, I'm acting in great boldness towards you. Okay, so we need to see Paul just really putting himself out there. Really, he doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't just try to act really reserved. He just puts himself out there to the Corinthians and he says, I'm acting very boldly towards you. And that vulnerability uh, brings with it much joy, but it also brings much pain. When you love big like Paul does, then you open yourself to hurt big as Paul 
did. It's one of the things that really hits you when you read through Paul's letters is his deep love for the church, his deep love for other Christians, his deep love for those he is discipling and pastoring. Not many of us love with the depth and to the extent and the strength that Paul did because we're not willing to endure the pain and the self-denial like Paul did. Paul was not, I don't know what your image of Paul is, but he was no cool, kind of stoic guy. He wasn't some grumpy old preacher yelling at everybody. He loved the church with a risk-taking, self-denying love. And that brought him a lot of joy, and it brought him a lot of pain as well. And we got glimpses of it before, but we really see it here in chapter 7. Paul doesn't try to put on a mask. He doesn't try to gloss things over or present well. He's genuine. He's authentic. He lets us see how that deep love caused him emotional turmoil. And we really see that beginning in verse 5. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So beginning in verse 5, he's going to take us back to this story, as we said, back to chapter 2. And he's going to finish the story that he started. And so it would be good for us to get the context of what's happening so we can understand a bit more. So as best we can, talk, as best we can tell, Paul made an urgent, vig- urgent visit, there we go, an urgent visit down to Corinth uh, in A.D. 55, which he describes in chapter 2, verse 1, as a painful visit, a painful visit. He had to confront them on some things, and we've all had that kind of, I, need to, I know I need to do this, but I think I'm going to be sick type of feeling when we need to confront someone about something, right? It's not overly enjoyable. And so he goes down to do that. He calls it his painful visit to them. He immediately returns to Ephesus, and he changes the plans that he had made earlier to visit Corinth again. He had two trips planned, uh, one on his way to Macedonia, and then on his return trip, he was going to stop by as well. And so he scratched those out of his day planner, and instead, he decided to write in, write a letter to the Corinthians that would take the place of these two visits, okay? So he was still a bit fearful that there were some guys there in Corinth who were leading the church astray a bit, and uh, he was still a bit fearful that they would come in and destroy the work that he had started. And so instead of the two visits, he knew he just couldn't write them off completely. He said, I'll write this letter. And uh, it's what some have called the severe letter or the tearful letter he references in chapter 2 verse 4 that he had written that letter through many tears and so he had a rough visit he had the painful visit and then he had this severe letter that he wrote to to correct them and to confront them but Paul's deep love for the church he's not just coldly writing this letter he's writing it through many tears okay and he gives the letter to his friend and his co-worker Titus to deliver it to the Corinthians. Okay? You're with me so far? Painful visit, severe letter, many tears, give it to Titus to deliver to the Corinthians. Okay? 
So Paul and Titus make a plan to meet up in Troas after the letter was delivered. So later that year, Paul heads to Troas, hoping to meet Titus there with the news of how the Corinthians received the letter. But Titus is nowhere to be found. For some reason, they had a backup plan that if Titus didn't show up in Troas, they were to meet up in Macedonia. So when Paul waits a bit, Titus isn't shown in Troas. Go to plan B. I'm to meet him in Macedonia. So Paul makes his way to Macedonia, anxiously awaiting Titus's arrival. And while Paul is there waiting, he doesn't have a great time. Okay, this is no vacation in Greece. Okay, uh, he says he had no rest. He was afflicted at every turn, and he had both external opposition and internal anxiety and distress. And so if you've ever maybe written an email where you had to, uh, you know, confront someone or you just weren't sure about how that email was going to be taken and then that turmoil of waiting for a response, how are they going to receive that email? And you get your app out and you're always swiping down to refresh to see if that email is going to come in more so than usual. And you're like, I wonder if it's come in yet. Refresh? Nope, not yet. What's taking them so long to respond? And you've got that inner turmoil within, right? Or you send a text and you're not sure how it's going to receive. And then you see those three dots come and you're like, how are they going to take it? What are they going to say in response, right? What is taking them so long? And then it just comes with one word and those three dots have been going for like a half hour. You know they wrote this, and then they brought it down to this. Anyway, <clears throat> that's what Paul is going through. How would they respond? Paul is anxious. He's struggling with regret over writing the letter. You know how we sometimes examine every word. Should I have said it that way? Should I have added that part? That seems a little bit harsh now, a day later. Should, I should have complimented them on this. Paul didn't have an email that he could go back and look at, so because back you just write it and then you send it, and then, oh, did I say that? Did I not? He's got all this inner turmoil over the letter. On top of all that, how would they receive Titus? Why isn't he showing up? I hope he's okay. What if the Corinthians reject Titus? What if they reject the letter? What if they reject me? What if the letter is like the straw that breaks the camel's back and all the things that we built in Corinth just come collapsing down? What if they run after these other false teachers who are trying to work their way into their church? Why can't I catch a break here in Macedonia? I've got all this stuff going on inside and then I've got all this fighting without and affliction at every turn. Where in the world is Titus? Titus! Right? That's what Paul is going through in Macedonia. That's the fighting without and the fears within. And so we should take great heart. Paul is just like you and me. Paul is just like you and me. He was deeply affected by his circumstances, especially his pastoral circumstances, and he wasn't ashamed to confess the toll it took on him, body and soul. We can sometimes read about these people in the Bible and others in church history, men and women who have done great things for God, and we can be kind of quick to, to elevate them almost above their humanity. And yes, they accomplished great things for God, but they were still human. They still had struggles. 
and we see God using them in their weakness for His glory. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, once said during one of his sermons, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness that I get to. David Brainerd, a missionary to the Native Americans in New Jersey in the 1700s, often wrote things in his journal like this, was scarce ever more confounded with the sense of my own unfruitfulness and unfitness of my work than now. Oh, what a dead, heartless, barren, unprofitable wretch did I now see myself to be. My spirits were so low and my bodily strength so wasted that I could do nothing at all. Don't read his diary if you're not, you know, ready for it, because it's a lot like that. He went through some very dark times as he ministered in New Jersey. Martin Luther used to hide himself away for days, and his family would hide any sharp objects that were in the house because they were afraid he would harm himself. And on one of these occasions, his wife, Katerina, entered his room in black mourning clothes. Luther was startled and asked who had died, and she said, no one, but by the way you are acting, I thought God must have died. <laughs> and so we see great men who have done great things in the church through history that also struggled with this fears within, with this emotional distress that we see Paul go through. They had real weaknesses, real struggle, and some of us carry those same struggles and distress ourselves, and yet God used them in powerful ways to spread the gospel, to build His kingdom, to serve the poor. And so we should hear Paul say things like fighting without and fears within and let it wash away any lies that we can't be effective for God because we're not soaring on a spiritual high Sunday to Sunday. And we just call out to God, oh God, use me, use me like you use Paul in all of my weaknesses, in my fears, in my emotional turmoil. Use me for your glory. When we see Paul in this state, it makes verse 6 just pop off the page, doesn't it? But God. So he's got fighting without, and he's got fears within, he's got affliction at every turn, and then we get to verse 6, but God. But God. Thank God he still loves us and uses us when we are downcast, but thank God for the but gods in the Bible as well. Even though Paul was in distress in a bad way, he's not going to stay there. Things are going to turn around through the rest of the chapter. And one commentator said, Paul's other directed love was the basis for his depression and also the springboard for his comfort and joy. Okay? So it's because Paul gives of his heart so much that he got in this state that he was in, this downcast state, because he's so intertwined with the Corinthian church. His heart is so for them. Uh, do, you, do you see that? But it's also the springboard that is going to bring him out of that and provide him comfort and joy. Philip Brooks said, to be a true minister to others is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The one who gives themselves to others can never be a wholly sad person, but no more can they be a person of unclouded gladness. And that's what we see 
here in Paul. His love, his other-directed love, brought him distress, but also great happiness. So, could he have just lived his life and not experienced either of those things and just lived a life in isolation for himself and not have the distress and not have the comfort and joy? Yeah, he could, but what kind of a life would he have lived? What would his life have been? So how did this other directed love serve as a springboard for Paul's comfort and joy? How was Paul comforted during this time? Well, verse 6 tells us very clearly, but God who comforts the downcast comforted me with the coming of Titus. Titus arrives. So you can imagine the swell of emotion over Paul at seeing Titus arrive in Macedonia, Macedonia, you can kind of picture him, you know, grabbing Titus by the shoulders and looking him in the eye and saying, what took you so long? And then pulling him in for a big hug, right? And tears and laughter. Titus has arrived. Paul's spirits begin to lift. Even if Titus brings a bad report about Corinth, Paul's joy is rising just at Titus' coming. And so we need to let Paul's words sink in. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us with the coming of Titus. So often, when we think of God at work, we only think of His work in kind of a a supernatural, direct way. When we read of God guiding us or comforting us, whatever it might be, we tend to think more of His supernatural work. And while all of His work is supernatural, In one sense, we can't ignore that God uses some very everyday things as well to accomplish His purposes. Paul says, God comforted us. How? With the coming of Titus. So on Friday night uh, at our fuel, um, we put the call out a few weeks ago for people to provide snack, uh, which kind of offsets our pop and our chips Uh, because man cannot live on Doritos alone. And so uh, every second week, there's some people in the church who are baking for us and and providing different snacks, and we're all very appreciative of that. So this Friday, Hazel and Finn baked cupcakes for us, and it was very wonderful. Uh, But when I say Hazel baked cupcakes, no one on Friday night said, well, you shouldn't say Hazel baked the cupcakes. You should really say Hazel's oven baked the cupcakes, right? Nobody said that. Not one person, you know. We, we assume that she just didn't make the cupcakes with her bare hands. We assume she just didn't go, cupcake, here you go, <laughs> right? We assume she used some instruments. A mixer and an oven would be the two main ones. Well, don't underestimate Hazel's ability. So we give Hazel the credit, but we also recognize that she used some instruments to accomplish the task, right? So in the same way, Paul gives God all the credit for his comfort, 